This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail, or you can find me at Facebook at either Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. I want to talk briefly about the house I live in. It's 120 years old. It was originally built as a two-family house with two sides, each side mirroring the other side. And the guy who built it, Noah Plimpton, is buried in the town cemetery and lies there to this day. It was one of six houses that were built in the first subdivision in my town. Previous to that, all of the properties were farms or country estates. But in the late 1890s, the Abbott family subdivided their land into a bunch of single building lots. And the first phase of that development was just six lots, and my house was built on one of those lots. When I bought it 10 years ago, almost nothing had been done to it in the previous 110 years. I mean, they had upgraded the systems. There was electric and there was plumbing. Maybe they had changed the cabinets in the kitchen. But the layout of the house, the floor plan, the stairs, the windows, the siding, everything was the same. The shape, the exterior building envelope, it was all the same. Nothing had changed. And it was easily the worst house in the neighborhood. And not only is, was the house terrible, but it, always, it had always been a rental property too. Whoever owned it before I bought it had rented out both sides of it. And I did that too for a few years. I rented out both sides and I spent as little money as possible maintaining it. You know, that just cuts into your profits. You know, so there's this nice old New England neighborhood, you know, old trees, beautiful old homes. And then there's my dumpy two family right in the middle of it. Well, after I'd owned this house for a few years, my wife and I and our kids moved in to one side and we thought we'd rent the other side for a while, but eventually we're going to, our plan was to turn this into a one family house. So we're living in the one side of this two family house and we got tenants on the other side. You know, nothing works in the house. Then we start to appreciate how terrible it's been, how slummy. But we're living in this, this, you know, the, the, the one side of this house. And on, within a month of living there, we had a very interesting encounter with one of the neighbors. One day I come home and I'm trying to get into my driveway and right in the middle of the road, not on one side and not on the other side, but literally right in the middle, straddling the center line of the road is this car, this Volvo SUV. And it's a quiet street. You know, it's not like she's blocking traffic, but she's sitting there texting this woman in her Volvo SUV right in the middle of the road. And so I can't get by on either side. So I wait for a little bit and, you know, she's engrossed in her texting. So then I tap on my horn, beep, beep. I give a couple beeps. So she pulls up to the intersection to a stop sign. And then she just stops there and continues texting. Again, just kind of blocking my way. And I'm trying to get around so I can get to my house. So I, so I tap again, the horn that is. And then her husband and she both jump out of the car. And they storm back towards me. And she says to me, I live here. And so I sort of chuckled. And I said, well, I, I live here too. I'd only been living there a month. But I said, I live here too. I live in that house 
pointing to my shabby two-family hovel, the broken-down slum of the neighborhood. And she says, no, no, I own here. That's what she said, I own here. You know, the inference was clear. She thought I was a tenant of the notoriously bad two-family rental property that was staining her, you know, the, the eyesore of the neighborhood. And then I was a tenant there. And, you know, she had such disdain for the rental class. You know, these interlopers who had come to besmirch the sanctity of her neighborhood. Surely these renters have no real rights. They're not real Americans. So I said to her, well, I, I own here too. I, I own that house. I own it. I'm the owner. And then she looked me right in the face and she said, well, fix it up. It's a dump. And then she got in her car and she drove away. You know, and after this happened, I was, I was dumbfounded. You know, I'm on the one hand, you know, I have feelings like everyone else. So on the one hand, this kind of hurt my feelings. I mean, it's one thing to know you live in the crappiest house in town, but it's quite another one. Someone tells you how crappy it is and tells you to fix it up. It's an eyesore. So that hurt my feelings, even though I knew it was true. I mean, it was a dump and I needed to fix it up. And I, and I was planning to, you know, just hadn't, you know, quite gotten around to it yet. But then I also sort of excoriated myself because I thought, well, what have I done? This is my personality. What have I done to provoke this woman? What have I done wrong? Surely there's, surely I have, I, I bear the blame here, which many of us are wired that way. You know, when things go wrong or there's an argument, we think, well, what have I done wrong? We blame ourselves. Well, that's what I did. I thought, gosh, what, have, what did I, did I honk too loud? You know, was I too impatient? You know, and so I went through the specifics of the events leading up to the ultimate confrontation. I thought, you know, I, I didn't honk that loud. I, they were just kind of love tap honks. And I was patient. I waited there. I mean, you know, and it wasn't me in the middle of the road straddling the center line texting after all. So I thought, you know, no, I, I didn't really do anything to deserve this other than be the lower class renter in her eyes anyways, who had no rights. You know, the disenfranchised plebe who dare confront the landed gentry. That, that was my big crime here. She was entitled as a superior being to apply her own set of rules, which entitled her in her own mind to treat those who rank below her as garbage, basically, should they question just what the heck she's doing in the middle of the road texting. Now, I've since found out from some other neighbors, and, and mo almost all of my neighbors are really, really nice. But I've since found out then that this woman is kind of the neighborhood crank. She's angry. She's bitter. She's always yelling at people when they park in front of her house, even though street parking is legal on our street. She's that lady. Well, the whole episode made me think of a book that I read several years ago for the first time but since have read several times. The title of the book is The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. And the principles described in the book, The Four Agreements, are based on old Toltec wisdom. And the Toltecs were an ancient indigenous group living somewhere in the Americas. And one of these agreements, of course, is don't take anything personally. Because anything anyone does reflects their own reality 
and in the words of Don Miguel Ruiz, their own dream. So how people treat you is really not about you at all. It's about them, what's going inside their heads and their hearts based on their perceptions, their understandings. Or in the case of this woman, their sense of entitlement. Several years earlier, I had a similar yet very different experience that taught me a similar lesson. I was going in for a temple recommend interview with the stake president. And let me just say up front here, I have no issues with temple recommend questions. I have no problem with them. People get very angsty about temple recommend interviews. And I, I just don't have an issue with them. I'm not judging people who do. That's just not my cross to bear. But what I don't like is when the interviewer, be it the bishop or the stake president, wants to get really, really personal and get into the depth of my soul beyond the questions themselves. That's where my hangups become apparent. So I'd gone in for a temple recommend interview with the stake presidency. It was with one of the counselors in the stake president. And he asked me all the questions and I answered them all honestly and they were all the right answers. But then at the end of it, he wanted me to bear my testimony and to explain to him my understanding of Christ's love for me in the atonement. And he didn't ask me this in a, I'd really like to learn from you or I'd like to have a spiritual experience. It was more of a, let me see if your understanding is proper. Kind of that probing way. You know, you passed all the standard questions, but we're going to see if we can't find that inner heretic in you after all. And it made me self-conscious. Like, what am I, do I not believe properly or something? And the other thing about it is, you know, I, I do have a great faith in Christ's love and in the, the atonement, but they're also deeply personal things for me. And I, I, you know, I don't even know this guy. And it's as if he wants me to share my deepest, most spiritual, personal feelings with him. And I, I don't even know him. And I feel judged by him. So I, you know, I did it. I explained, you know, what I, and I tried to give the minimum to get through this thing so I could get out of there. And at the end of it, he wanted to read to me a scripture and tell me where my understanding was lacking and how I could more thoroughly appreciate these concepts based on his knowledge. And I nodded and yes, yes, of course, of course, yes. And, you know, then he signed my recommend and I left and I, and I left it, you know, I was irritated when I was coming out of there. I drove home and I was bugged by the whole experience. It was unpleasant. But later as I was driving home, it occurred to me as it had with this experience with the woman on my street, that the way he was treating me, the probing questions, this sort of sanctimonious judging he was doing, this was about him. This was his deal, not mine. And we can spend hours speculating about just what that deal of his was or is, or, you know, is he arrogant? Is he, is he actually really insecure inside? Was he just kind of overzealous and trying to defend the doctrines of the church per his calling as this, you know, who knows, but whatever it was driving him, it was his agenda, his his motivations, his intentions, it had nothing to do with me, my spirituality, my worthiness, my ability to communicate with God or have my own spiritual experience, nothing at all. 
Now, the temptation all of us face in these type of situations is we want to go back to the person and change the way they're thinking, change their deals, enlighten them, if you will, so that they can see us from the proper vantage point so they can understand us and really appreciate us and stop saying mean condescending things in the case of the woman on my street or be so judgmental and sanctimonious and in the case of the counselor in the state presidency. The temptation is go to them and say, where do you get off thinking that way? Let me tell you how you should think. That is the human knee-jerk reaction in these type of situations. But if you read Don Miguel Ruiz, that's a fool's errand. It's better, healthier, according, according to the Toltecs, those ancient indigenous wise people, to not take it personally to begin with, to know inside your own mind and your own heart that the way other people are treating you has nothing to do with you. It's all about their own reality or lack thereof, their own dream. It's their deal, their hangups, their lack of perspective, whatever it is. But you can't solve it. All you can do is choose whether or not you're going to take it personally. Underlining this approach, of course, is a certain degree of acceptance. Accepting others as they are. Realizing it's not about you. The other thing this approach is based on is the immutable truth that the only person you can control and or change is yourself. In the same way others can't control or change you, you cannot control or change them. And so sometimes the only choice we have is whether or not we're going to endure well or or not endure well something. We think we have a broader set of choices than we do. We think, well, I'm going to move away from this crappy neighborhood. The people here are snobs. Or we think, this state presidency counselor, why, well, that guy's so full of crap. I'm leaving. Or if I'm not going to leave, I'm going to write a letter to somebody, get him fired, or I'm going to go lecture him, change his approach. And these false choices are based on the false belief that there is a neighborhood somewhere without the lady who's a crank where everybody's friendly and understanding or that there's a church somewhere where there are no hypocrites. Everybody's perfect and loving and kind and enlightened. Of course, these places don't exist, at least not on this planet. On this planet, there are grumpy neighbors and bad bosses and self-righteous leaders. So if we perceive those sort of choices available to us, they're false choices. They're mirages. By staring off at the mirages, we fail to learn the lessons that life is teaching us here and now. But it's scary to live in the here and the now and to let go of our desires to control and change other people. Because it requires that we put our faith in something bigger than ourselves. It requires us to actually believe the story of Jesus. His ministry, death, and his resurrection and ascension to heaven. But you'll find if you live long enough that people who think that way, who are constantly looking across the street to the next neighborhood or people who are constantly looking to change what's going on inside the heads and hearts of other people, they fail to learn the lessons that life is trying to teach them. If this woman 
who embarrassed me in front of my daughter on the street that I live, on the street in which I own property, hadn't said those things to me, I might never have thought about the wisdom of the Toltecs at all if the counselor to the stake president hadn't been so condescending and sanctimonious, I might not have had that lesson reinforced a second time. If I had been quick to bail, to quit, to try to change others, I would have missed out on all the opportunities to change myself. The only person I really can change. Maybe this is what Christ is talking about in the New Testament when he said, that ye shall not resist evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, I don't think you can take this verse literally. I don't think Christ is saying, if someone's beaten the crap out of you, you know, and it has bloodied the right side of your face, you ought to turn the left side so he can then beat the crap out of you again and bloody the left side. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's not what's going on here. So I don't think you can take this literally. But when you think about it figuratively, oh, then it starts to make sense indeed. If there's some lady on your street who's a jerk or some boss or church leader who's sanctimonious and self-righteous and a hypocrite, it will do you well mentally and spiritually to be able to turn away and not resist that person or those things. Now, Christ leaves out the details of how we're supposed to do that. You know, and a lot of the details of how to execute on some of these higher principles are left out. That's why I'm thankful for people like Don Miguel Ruiz, who can help us fill in the details. And what does he tell us to do? He tells us to not take anything personally. He teaches us that however people are treating you, it's about them. It's their deal. What's going on inside of them? It's not a reflection on you. Don't take it personally. Well, when you start to do that and you realize that there's something inside this woman or this counselor to the stake president or your boss or your spouse, whoever it is that you feel is metaphorically striking you on the cheek. Well, when you realize that, then something emerges from you. Pity, compassion, charity. You think, wow, what is, what has happened to these people that makes them act this way? You know, and feeling compassion and charity and pity for someone is way better than the feeling you get when you've ceded your dignity to that person and you've taken what they're saying to you personally. Now it's easy to do this when the woman on the street is a crank and all your neighbors are telling you, yeah, she's a crank. That's easier when you have people around you reassuring you that she is in fact someone to be pitied. It's a little harder when it's a church leader or an apostle, a family member, a spouse, maybe the in-laws. And it's 50 times harder when there's no one around you to reassure you that how other people are treating you is about them. It's not about you. This can get impossibly hard when the person mistreating you is worshipped by those around you like a hero or because of their status or their wealth or their position, whatever it is, we quickly in those circumstances start to feel 
pretty isolated, pretty alone, and after a little bit of time, sort of paranoid even, these type of situations can be some of our hardest trials in life. It's hard enough not resisting the evil perpetrated against us by others, but it's really hard when you feel like you don't have a friend on your side. And if you live long enough, you're going to find yourself in that position, at least temporarily, at least a couple times. And it's at those times that it's really make or break for you. You're going to either get help from God at those times because it's beyond you, or you're going to die. Those are the times in life that I think God comes to you because there are no distractions. There's nothing better around so God can really reassure you. But you don't get to that point if you're always looking for greener pastures elsewhere, always trying to avoid situations that are meant to teach you the lessons of life. And you also don't get to that point if you're constantly resisting evil, and I mean the evil as described by Jesus when he tells us to not resist evil, the evil that comes in the form of insults, in the form of people trying to control you, manipulate you. The evil that comes from the cranky lady on your street or from the condescending, self-righteous member of the state presidency. I'm talking about those kind of evils. But I'm also talking about evils that are of that ilk, yet much, much worse and more intense. That come from a spouse, an in-law, someone in a position of power over you. Anyone who can inflict their deal on you. If you spend your life resisting that kind of evil then you're just constantly engaged in a battle, a drama. And you never reach the point of stillness that turning the other cheek and the subsequent associated isolation can bring you. And it's hard to hear God's voice when you're not still. It sounds like a terrible rite of passage, I know. But I think it is the only path that leads us back to God. I think this is the straight and narrow path, in fact, that so few find. We've discussed this path in earlier episodes of this podcast when we talked about Job. But there's another character from the Old Testament whose life experience also illustrates this key principle, and that's Elijah himself. You remember him, right? Elijah, the one who showed up in the Kirtland Temple appearing to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. The guy who showed up to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. The last guy to have the sealing powers. We have heaped a lot on the shoulders of Elijah. But we rarely talk about the story of Elijah. So let me sum up some of the key points about Elijah's life. He was a prophet who went to the king of Israel, Ahab, who lived a couple hundred years after David and who had married Someone outside the faith, which in and of itself, I really don't think was that big of a deal, except that Jezebel was a real witch. She was ambitious and crazy and greedy beyond belief. And I think this was the real reason marrying her was a massive mistake. So Elijah goes to Ahab and says, look, you're, you're adopting a lot of the wrong principles here. And I, as a servant of the Lord, I may just have to bring a famine about. So he does that. Then all of the priests of Baal 
And Baal was the god that Jezebel worshipped. All the priests of Baal were challenged to end the famine. They couldn't. And then Elijah decided to have a mano-a-mano duel with the priests of Baal, except it was not really mano-a-mano. It was mano-450 priests of Baal. And he challenged them to the great wood-burning duel. They stacked up a bunch of wood. And Elijah said, whoever's God will burn this wood from from above, well, that'll be the real God we're going to listen to. And, of course, the priests of Baal fail. And then Elijah tells everybody, this is during the famine, by the way, during the drought. So the wood's really dry, really flammable. He says, douse all the wood with water. Douse it another time. Douse it a third time. And then Elijah rains down this tornado of fire from above and destroys this big pile of wood as well as all of the priests of Baal. They're all destroyed. And so you're reading this story and you think, holy crap, this is unbelievable. And maybe it is. But you're saying, whoa, what a story. But that's not the real power of the story of Elijah in my view. Later on, Jezebel is ticked. And she tells Elijah, I'm going to hunt you down until you end up in the same state as the priest of Baal, burnt to a crisp. And when Elijah hears this, he gets very depressed. He thinks, man, I've done all this to defend my God, to prove to everyone who the true God is. And this is what I get. Everybody's still rallying around this Jezebel nut job and she's got the social status and power to chase me, to threaten me, the prophet of the Lord. And so he becomes very depressed and he leaves. He goes off into the wilderness and he lays down hoping to die. Does that sound familiar to any of us? Isolated. Some crazy person who's attacking him, whose attacks are all about what's going inside her, not necessarily what he's done. And he ends up being isolated and full of doubt. Well, the Lord shows up, an angel actually, and says, look, have some food. You're going to have a little lesson tonight. So he eats a little food. And then he goes up to the edge of this cliff. And he feels the wind raging. But God's not in the wind. And then he feels the earth trembling. God's not in the earthquake. Then there's a great wildfire around him, but God's not in the wildfire either. And only after all that had happened, when all the distractions are eliminated, does Elijah, for the first time, in my view, understand God. And he understands God as the still, small voice. So even Elijah, the great prophet, had his path to walk which led him to this dark night of the soul when he was so despondent and isolated and paranoid and frustrated and friendless that he was finally quiet enough to hear God. This is a man who destroyed the priests of Baal and all the woodpire had afflicted the people of Israel with a famine. This is no ordinary guy, yet even he had to learn this final lesson. This lesson of not resisting the evil of others. This lesson of turning the other cheek. The lesson that that's the path to joy and happiness and peace. Because what others are doing to you is not about you, it's about them. 
And the only thing you can really control are your own reactions. And life is way better when those reactions are guided by love and compassion and pity. Interestingly enough, this is the guy who was sent to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration before Jesus' great trials, before the Garden of Gethsemane, before the trial in the Sanhedrin, before his own great night of darkness. Elijah was the one sent to him on the Mount of, on the Mount of Transfiguration to prepare him, prepare him to be ready to hear the still, small voice, to teach him how important it was to be still and not resist evil. Elijah is also the one who brought the sealing power to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. And what is the sealing power after all? Is the sealing power not activated by love itself? Does it not become effective only through love? Does, does any of this sealing power even matter if it's not motivated by love? I mean, well, this is the great lesson that Elijah learned in his life, even though he had earlier rained down fire on the priests of Baal, caused the famine, raised the poor widow's child from the dead even. The important lesson, the, the timeless lesson was this lesson of love that was taught to him only after he had felt totally alone paradoxically and was isolated to the point where he was still enough that he could hear. These are the lessons that can be learned when you stop resisting the evils of others, when you're able to turn the other cheek, when you're able to, when you're able to pray for those who despitefully use you, and sometimes that ability is given to us by God only when we've reached a point of stillness, perhaps even isolation. Again, one of the great paradoxes of life. Well, I've gone on too long. I hope you found something interesting here. Please email me your comments or questions at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time. <laughs>